comments on the agenda? We don't have any changes. Okay, seeing that, I'll take it out for public comment. Any comments on our agenda for today? Seeing that, I'll bring it back to the board for a motion. Madam Chair, I move to approve the agenda as presented. Thank you. I have a motion by Commissioner Barnes and a second by Commissioner Hubs. I'm sorry, Vice Chair Barnes. To approve the agenda, all in favor, please say aye. 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 No. Motion carries 8 to 0 with Commissioner McNinch absent. Agenda item number 15 member items, announcements, and correspondence. Chair will release informational. Commissioners may present emergent items. No action may be taken by the commission. Any item requiring commission action may be scheduled on a future commission agenda. The commission will review and may discuss correspondence sent or received by the commission since the last regular meeting and may provide copies for the exhibit file. Commissioners may provide hard copies of their correspondence for the written record. Correspondence sent or received by Secretary Wasley may also be discussed. Do we have any number items this morning? Secretary Wasley. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, first, I'd like to echo your sentiments uh, expressing uh, the department's gratitude to the community, to the Rackleys, and um, you know, yesterday evening having the opportunity to, to actually meet face to face and uh, have the opportunity to kind of reconvene uh, in a social setting, I think was a great catharsis for all of us. I know that in uh, some of the recent commission meetings, uh, under this particular agenda item, correspondence, we've, we've addressed a, an abundance of correspondence related specifically to agenda items. And I've shared uh, that the department receives a great deal of, of communication correspondence relative to ongoing department activities. And um, there is uh, some correspondence, although it's, it's a, maybe a little bit uh, dated that we received several months ago. It, it does acknowledge one particular program and one particular individual. And uh, uh, Madam Chair, with, with your blessing, I'd like to invite Voting Law Administrator Captain Bowles to uh, perhaps read that uh, letter just as a uh, acknowledgement of the importance of some of the community partnerships and some of the individual cabs and cab members uh, around around the state. This is uh, specific to some of the some of the challenges that the department has uh, relative to our capacity, relative to uh, coverage and our partnership and reliance on, on some of the cab members, uh, particularly um, in and around Hawthorne and uh, Mr. Glenn Bunch and his uh, tireless service in, in serving that county advisory board in, in partnership with the department and specific to, to Walker Lake. So, it, if, if we may. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the Commission. Um, this is just one example of uh, four or five uh, similar letters that we received annually for Mr. Bunch's service in the Kentucky Search and Rescue. And, um, this came from a member of the community, just uh, writing the department, and praised Mr. Bunch and his activities, and uh, turned this into a, a press release uh, from August of 2012. It is an example of the kind of uh, praise that we get from Mr. Bunch quite often. At 7.42 p.m. Saturday, August 15, 2020, Monroe County Search and Rescue was called out to locate a missing kayaker on Walker Lake from Dayton, Nevada. The life of a missing person who called 911 was met by the North County Under Sheriff Billy Ferguson. 
consumed in North County search and rescue personnel were on scene. Being avid kayakers and have the kayak around Lake Tahoe, the wife informed them that she and her husband were out for a day of fun on Walker Lake. They wanted to kayak to the east side of the lake and then back to Sportsman's Beach where they launched. On the return back to Sportsman's Beach, halfway across the lake, a squall came up, creating rough water and separating her from her husband. She had looked back, only to see him flipping over, and he was telling her to go on shore and get help. When she looked back again, she could not see him. It was believed that she was in better condition and had better chances of making shore, which amazingly she did. Upon arriving at shore, she retrieved her cell phone from their vehicle and called 911. Immediately, the sheriff's office personnel responded, and search and rescue was called into action with the rescue boat with two SAR members aboard and 16 SAR members on the shore. She told those coming to help that they both were wearing their life jackets. SAR members took positions on both the east and the west sides of the lake looking for any signs of the missing gentleman. One of the most encouraging thought for the searchers was that he was wearing his life jacket. This gave everyone hope that he was still alive and either floating out there in this good lake or that he did in fact make it shore. Search began on water and on shore. When at 9.09 p.m., he was spotted by the boat staff on the shore on the backside. Standing there with his kayak, there was communication between them. Quote, that was the greatest sound when we heard him call. That was elation among the SAR members on the boat and on shore. Now the strategy began of getting the onshore SAR members to the kayaker's location and pick him up and bring him to town. At this time, word was relayed by SAR members with the wife back on the shore at Sportsman's Beach that he had been found and he was okay. Her worst fears were laid to rest. He was alive. She had told SAR members that both she and her husband were cancer survivors and they were two very strong individuals. She had hoped that her husband was alive and he was. This is an example of the importance for everyone to wear their life jackets anytime they go out on any body of water, especially Walker Lake, and enjoy the day. It could mean the difference of living or dying. This day ended in happiness as the two were reunited back in Hawthorne and they were able to go back to their home and date together. Hugs and tears of joy took over. It was a good save. Be safe, everyone, on your life jacket at Save Lives. Thank you, Madam Thank you so much. Anything else, Secretary Wilson? No, ma'am, thank you. All right. Mr. Bunch, thank you and your team. Madam Chair, I'm, I'm, I might be remiss if I failed to acknowledge Mr. Bunch's recent assistance of a department employee as well. Uh, our own uh, Deputy Director Jack Robb had a family member stranded in Mineral County and there was some search and rescue of a more informal nature, but uh, just wanted to acknowledge Mr. Bunch and that assistance as well. Thank you, Mr. Bunch. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, moving on. Agenda item number 16, County Advisory Boards to Manage Wildlife, CAP Member Items Informational. CAP Members may present emergent items. No action may be taken by the Commission. Any item requiring Commission action will be scheduled on a future Commission agenda. Do we have any CAP Member Items? Okay, we do not. Moving right along. Agenda item number 17, status update for greater sage grouse and their habitat, wildlife staff specialist Sean Espinoza, informational. The game division will provide an update on sage grouse populations throughout their range in Nevada, as well as provide information on habitat conditions, availability, and threats. And Madam Chair, if I might uh, just provide a really brief introduction to this topic. This is in 
intended to be a fairly uh, broad and comprehensive overview of the status uh, for sagebrush and sagebrush. And I just, I just want to add a maybe a little background or, or context as we as we hear from staff specialist Espinoza. Uh, when we think about the sagebrush biome. The sagebrush covers 13 western states. Sage grouse occur in 11 of those states. Nevada is, uh, has been one of the strongholds for sage grouse. When we talk about the status of sage grouse, it's evaluated on the range-wide status of that species across those 11 states. There are two uh, very small, distinct population segments, one being the bi-state uh, between California and Nevada, the other being the Gunnison population in, in Colorado. Nevada, uh, Wyoming, and Montana uh, have the majority of, of the sage grouse throughout that range-wide distribution. But this is really a, a sagebrush topic. We know that we have less than 50% of the sagebrush that once occupied the, the, the range across those, those 13 states. And we know that there are over 350 species that occur in this biome. And so as we talk about sage grouse, we talk about sagebrush, I think it's important to kind of view sage grouse maybe as a, a bellwether um, for a lot of other species that are dependent on, on this ecosystem. And I just briefly uh, want to address um, the notion of um, captive rearing, which has been brought up in, in Wyoming. I know at least one commissioner has been asked a question about captive rearing. And, um, there's a lot of nuance to mating that involves a lot of natural selection for this species. Um, but at the end of the day, even if all that were able to be overcome, we were able to successfully capture, uh, breed, hatch, and rear young without the presence of the sagebrush um, on which this species depends as a sagebrush obligate, um, it wouldn't be wouldn't realize the benefits, the intended benefits. So just want to provide that as a, as a brief backdrop, and I know uh, Sean has a, a great deal of information here, and um, I look forward to hearing it. Thanks. Uh, thank you for that preface, uh, Secretary Wosley. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Commissioners, uh, Chairman East. Uh, I'm going to transition over to the uh, PowerPoint, and uh, we'll get started. Okay. Okay, can you all hear me okay? Excellent. Okay, so um, this presentation is basically going to be in t two different parts. So the first part, we're essentially going to talk about um, the recent open file report that came out by the USGS and a pretty comprehensive deep dive into sage grouse populations across the range and then it scales down almost to lek levels. So we'll get a pretty good appreciation about how sage grouse are doing, uh, not just by climate cluster or region, but all the way down to these smaller neighborhood levels that are akin to our population management units, if you're familiar with those. Uh, and then we'll transition into kind of the state of the state of sage grouse in Nevada in terms of the threats that the Great Basin is facing and, and the state of Nevada is facing. So the objectives of that open file report um, 
it involved a lot of data collection across the range, of course. So each state had to provide all of their sage-grouse light count data to the USGS. And one of the first objectives of this um, uh, effort was to develop a range-wide database, which we hadn't had uh, before. Each state was basically managing their own databases uh, and, and not really sharing the, that information uh, into a broader effort. So uh, we got that accomplished during this effort, which was, uh, I'll show you here in a minute, the, the enormity of that, that database. Um, the next was to uh, develop sort of these different spatial scales of analysis. Um, as I mentioned, you know, looking at things from a LEC level often, but we want to know how that scales up into you know, neighborhood clusters all the way to climate clusters, which would be something akin to like the Great Basin itself. Uh, and the third objective was to actually do the trend estimates themselves. Uh, a very comprehensive population analysis of, of trend for each one of these uh, spatial scales. Uh, objective four, which I won't go into, I think maybe um, uh, later on we'll have uh, perhaps Dr. Peter Coates to uh, talk about the targeted annual warning system, which is basically looking at things from the LEC level and neighborhood cluster level and saying, okay, if, if there's something going on in the LEC that it, it's not going on across a, a, a broader area, a population, um, and it's declining at a, at a greater rate, say, than what the climate cluster is doing or the neighborhood clusters is doing, then we know that there's a problem there. And so that's a, a system where there's actually watches and warnings in place to say, hey, we need to do something here to address the problem. Uh, so getting back to that objective one, the range-wide LEC database, um, most state wildlife agencies began collecting data on LECs back in 1953. Um, but really, the majority of, of that monitoring uh, at that point in time was looking at the larger LECs on the landscape. Um, larger LECs that were next to roads, oftentimes. Um, aerial surveys weren't really widely used in those days yet, um, and so, as you can imagine, it's much easier to see a larger lek on the landscape than it is a small lek. Um, the database, now this is going through 2019, so um, the, the comprehensive amount of data that's in there is actually almost 300,000 lek observations uh, during the period from 1953 to 2019, uh, which was the conclusion of the analysis. So we're going to be uh, providing 2020 and 2021 data as soon as it's available. Um, it includes 8,421 unique LEC locations across the range, uh, and those are comprised of um, uh, 5,542 active LECs, uh, 1,341 historic LECs, 1,079 inactive LECs, and 342 that are pending new LECs that need further ver verification. Uh, and then just the mean number of males displaying on all LECs was 12.3. So this analysis, uh, like I mentioned, it broke down the range of the species basically into the LEC scale, uh, the neighborhood cluster scale, which I'll show you a map of here in a minute, and then the larger grouping of the neighborhood clusters uh, into a climate scale, which again would be something akin to the Great Basin or the eastern Wyoming 
uh, and Wyoming Basin areas. Um, the methodology that they use to identify these um, different nested or neighborhood clusters, um, so they used a bunch of GPS and a bunch of VHF data collected from 2006 to 2020. And they had over 1,500 unique marked, GPS marked individual birds that provided one, over 1.6 million locations across the range. Uh, they used uh, 1,270 uniquely marked VHF birds uh, that encompassed uh, 31,731 locations. So they used these Brownian bridge models for the GPS data and for the uh, VHF data they kind of looked at uh, developing home ranges for each one of the birds or groups of birds and then they determined how much time they were spending outside of these these certain clusters to come up with okay what type of an area we're we looking at when we start breaking things down the, the graph or the map on the left of course is the range of the species the map on the on the right shows these various climate clusters and as Secretary Wosley mentioned we have the bi-state population right down here and the Washington population, which is actually a state-threatened species up here. This is the Great Basin area, Climate Cluster E. Climate Cluster C is actually this very small, isolated population near Jackson Hole, Wyoming, uh, which is very close to uh, being in a, in a pretty um, uh, depauperate state right now. Uh, climate Cluster F is the Wyoming Basin, probably the, the stronghold of strongholds of sage-grouse in the range. And then the eastern portion of the range, Climate Cluster D. So as I mentioned, um, this is uh, kind of a color-coded map of all the neighborhood clusters across the range in which they evaluated each one of these populations at a, at a pretty small scale, but this is also something that's pretty manageable too. And this graph over here just shows uh, the, the various cluster levels. Uh, this would be something like a LEC level right here, and all the way up to climate, or this LEC level 13, which would be more of the range of the species. And you can see here, very few birds, no birds, are outside of the range of the species. And as you get down to smaller and smaller scales, uh, we're, we're increasing the area that are occupied by these birds and that they don't spend much time out of. This climate cluster two and three right here is the neighborhood cluster level. So the, aside from the spatial scale, we also have to look at things from a temporal scale, so different time scales. Um, sage grouse are a cyclical cyclical species by nature, so they go up and down as, as precipitation elevates and we go into drought cycles and so on and so forth. But the important thing here is to think of this as this is one cycle right here. And so this would be a low point in the population, a high point in the population, and the important thing to remember here is we're looking at things from a nadir to nadir standpoint, so a trough to trough, and we're looking at uh, evaluating uh, population trends uh, rather than apex to apex, because there's much greater amount of variation when we look at things from apex to apex, especially in the early days. As I mentioned, early 1950s, uh, 
evaluate or they were monitoring much larger lex at the time rather than the, than the smaller lex. So it's a much better look at trend by looking at things from a nader to nader standpoint. So think of this as about 1960 over here and 2019 over here. And so this is just a, a cartoon that shows if we had an increasing population and you looked at things from a nader to a nader, you'd be increasing. This is a stable population. This is a decreasing population. So these are the results for the, uh, the range-wide um, uh, status in terms of population trends. Um, these graphs here are essentially the same, but different temporal scales are added to these down here. The long-term population growth rate for the range of the species is 0.969. We want to be above one. One is a stable number. I'm sure you've heard the estimates of, of lambda, perhaps from mule deer presentations. But this essentially says that we're declining at a rate of about 3.1% per year. That equates over that time frame. You wouldn't think that that means that much. But over that, that long-term time frame, from 1960 to 2019, that's an 80.7% decline range-wide. If we look at it from a mid-term population growth rate standpoint of 33 years, uh, that did not change. It remained the same, 0.969. And then a short-term, so the last 17 years, we actually see that the decline is not as great, so it's leveled out a bit. The same thing for the more recent cycle, so that's, that's one cycle, nadir to nadir, 0.977. So basically a 2.3% annual rate of decline uh, over the most recent cycle. And this is how we're doing in the Great Basin. Long term, uh, 0.971, so it's pretty similar. Uh, we can kind of see that that, that that graph here looks pretty similar, you know, pretty high numbers of birds in the 60s and 70s, and then we reached a point at about 1984, 85, where we were starting to get below that long-term mean and population growth rate. Uh, we'll come back to this, but this was kind of an interesting year, 1985. We actually, as a department, closed the season in 1985 for sage grouse and then reopened it once populations began to increase here but then we experienced a decline and it never got back to this long-term mean. Uh, the medium term, uh, 0.974 uh, rate of decline, still not much different than what's going on range-wide. Uh, and then here, the short-term population growth rate of 0.968, so a decline of 42% over that short-term. But more recently, um, in the last uh, cycle, which was 2014 to 2019, our population growth rate is 0.949, um, which is pretty striking. So here's a comparison of, of how we're doing, how we're measuring up against some of the other states. Um, really, the only state that had uh, a population growth rate above one was Wyoming. Uh, and we actually pretty close in Montana, but still not above one. 
And that was this, mainly this area of Wyoming here, the Wyoming Basin, a little bit here. The eastern portion of the range um, really is kind of drugged down by this, this area here. That's the Powder River Basin. And if anything, any of you know Wyoming very well and eastern Wyoming, that is oil and gas central out there. Um, there's pretty dense well pads out there, uh, lots of roads, transmission lines, and that really is the driving factor for why this population is, is doing as poorly as it is. So bringing things uh, back home uh, a little bit, th these are our light counts for the last uh, 20 years essentially. Um, this shaded area right here is actually our production, which is, is measured from the wings that, that come from our harvest. And what you'll note here is that when you get a high production year, you really don't realize that in, in the light counts until about one to two years after that, that high production year. Once that production starts to, to dive down a little bit, um, you start to see kind of a, a decline uh, that happens um, in the, in the let counts as well. And you see that here also. Um, another thing that we're looking at over time is what's going on with our recruitment and production. If you look at it by decade, uh, we're kind of stepping down in terms of our recruitment. Um, there'll be a slide at the end of the presentation that has some kind of uh, striking resemblance to what's going on with mule deer as well. Um, so some demographic issues that we're seeing. We're seeing a little bit of a decline in annual survival and, of course, the chick survival. Uh, and this is chick survival from adult hens uh, in USGS studies. So, a little bit different uh, effort in terms of how they're measuring chick survival as opposed to how we're measuring it from the wing analysis, but pretty similar in terms of what's going on uh, with two major metrics for what drives St. Charles populations. This map shows basically the neighborhood clusters across the range at various temporal scales. Uh, so this is kind of the, the long-term 1960 to 2019 picture, all the way down to the more uh, sh uh, short-term uh, or recent cycles. So, so again, this would be like that 2014 to 2019 period. We see periods in here where we've got populations that are doing okay, um, almost whatever scale you look at, but none as good as what we see here for um, the Wyoming Basin, and then a portion of uh, eastern Montana. A lot of effort has been placed in eastern Montana with NRCS, Sage-Grouse Initiative, um, projects that have taken place and, and different management perspectives. But remember that that, that climate cluster uh, D that was over here um, is, is more driven by what's going on here in the Powder River Basin. So we can switch gears a little bit now and talk to uh, talk about some uh, specific threats to sage-grouse habitats here in, in Nevada. And first and foremost that everybody always thinks of is, is fire and the, and the cheatgrass cycle that, that emerges from that. So we did just a, a quick analysis of, of how much burned area we have in Nevada within 
our priority habitats, which are this red color here, and then also the, uh, the general habitat management area. The priority habitat is really more of the um, uh, higher density population areas, breeding habitat, it's somewhat lek driven, and then um, our, our general habitats are you know, less revolved around uh, breeding habitats, uh, could include some uh, fall and, and winter habitats as well. But over the course of uh, the last 20 to 30 years, um, out of the 11.5 million acres of priority habitat in the state, um, 2.7 million, 2.8 million acres have burned. So we're looking at an effect of about 24, over 24 percent of the state's priority habitat has been affected by wildfire uh, within general stored, but in large part. Uh, We've got some emerging analysis coming from USGS that suggests basically that about 10 to 20 percent of any fire can be expected to be restored or naturally um, go back to uh, kind of a healthy quality habitat. USGS also did an analysis and this is basically looking at lek trends for every lek that's burned over, but what they found was every increase in 10 square kilometer of burned area decreased our lambda rate by 2.1%. Um, so above and beyond what climate would actually do, fire uh, would drive that population down another 2.1% annually. Conifer encroachment, um, this is probably the threat in many states that's probably most well addressed, I would say, for where conifer does uh, occur, but um, throughout history, uh, Tausch and Nowak, Nowak found that um, PJ woodlands expanded by as much as three times since the Little Ice Age, and more recently by as much as about ten times uh, since the, the 1800s. Um, much effort has been placed into conifer removal, uh, particularly around lexites, nesting, breeding habitat, and there has been some, some success. Um, a study conducted by uh, Sanford et, et al. In, in Box Elder County, Utah, found that actually females were selecting for sites um, nearer to conifer encroached areas rather, or um, uh, conifer removal areas rather than um, some more novel habitats that hadn't been uh, impacted. So, don't really know what's going on there unless there's a you know a positive response by perhaps forbs and grasses after the removal. Um, and then in Oregon, uh, Severson, who actually was with the USGS, uh, found positive trends in, in juniper treatment areas relative to control sites with results showing a 6%, over a 6.6% increase in annual female survival and an 18% increase in nest survival post-removal. So that has some promise. Another threat that we see in Nevada and uh, is continuing to emerge is uh, mining activity. Um, since 2010, 570 mine plans have been authorized within priority habitat management area. Not all, not all of those will become mines, but they're approved, so they could be developed. Um, and you can see the concentration of where that action is occurring. Most of it is, well, this is the current trend here. So most of that is developed, um, but this Battle Mountain trend here um, is ongoing development and further development. Um, this area here is Battle Mountains, uh, Fish Creek Range down here, 
getting into the Cortez range and the three bar area down here. Um, so uh, definitely an area of high risk to sage grouse. Um, oftentimes what we hear is that the footprint is small for mining, the actual footprint of the mine itself. However, it's oftentimes the indirect effects, the effects of the road, the amount of noise that the mine creates on the landscape uh, that disturbs and eventually some of these leks just are abandoned over time uh, with all that act activity going on. Uh, 83 mine plans are pending authorization in, in priority habitat management areas, so potential for upping that, that number. Uh, within general habitat, 220 mine plans have been authorized since 2010. And, and this is an area that I'll be working with uh, Dr. Peter Coates on in the near future to try and address in terms of researching the effects of uh, across the state. Uh, another thing associated with mining is exploration. This is a little bit tougher to analyze on the landscape just because really we only get a good idea of anything that's over five acres in terms of exploration. Anything under five acres is notice level and we don't really get any documentation of that. Uh, but still, mining exploration can have an effect on, on the habitat and I'm sure many of you have seen um, the, the photo below on the landscape and, and what that can do. Um, that's probably a, an over five acre disturbance there, but there are many more that um, uh, are under, under five acres, and you can kind of see the distribution of that on the landscape. Again, uh, very much associated with these gold trends that are on the, uh, on the surface. Geothermal development. Um, really, most of the geothermal resources are outside of the range of sage-grouse. However, a couple of projects have been realized within sage-grouse habitat. Um, one project here, McGinnis Hills Geothermal Facility in Central Nevada, and then there's another one up here, the Tuscarora Geothermal Facility up here. It's actually on some private land. Um, but we've spent quite a bit of time researching the effects of that, and the results of that research uh, have led us to uh, realize that uh, leks that are less than five kilometers had population growth rates of 1.15 before the installation of the facility and 0.90 after installation. So a pretty drastic effect. Um, we had saw a 24% decrease in population growth rate after the geothermal installation. And LEX within two kilometers of the geothermal infrastructure had an absence rate of 6.1% before and almost 50% after installation. Um, LEX greater than two kilometers away experienced absence rates of 0.1% before and 0.2% after installation. So this two kilometers seems to be a bit of a threshold. If you're within that two kilometers, you're probably experiencing things like noise and activity. Perhaps some, there's some raven issues there as well. Um, wild horses, of course we had that discussion uh, yesterday. Um, these are the herd management areas um, placed over uh, priority habitat and you can see in, especially in this area here there's a lot of overlap. Um, the shading indicates how much uh, over appropriate management level each one of these herd management areas is at. So this crosshatch 
here is uh, actually 400% over AML. Um, probably some very negative impacts in Central Nevada. We have 83 different herd management areas across the state, encompassing 15.7 million acres. Uh, there's only 16 herd management areas that are at appropriate management level. Um, Nevada's appropriate management level on the low end is, is about 7,000 horses, uh, and the high end is 11,000, 12,000 horses. Our current estimate uh, as of March of 2021 is, is almost 45,000 horses. Um, recent research has been conducted on the effects of horses on sage grouse, uh, particularly with lecking activity. And uh, this is through observation uh, with, with double-blind observers on the landscape. Um, lek activity was five times more likely uh, on leks where native ungulates were present, so meaning things like pronghorn and mule deer. Uh, Sage-grouse don't seem to mind those, but where non-native ungulates come on the lek, like horses, and in some cases even livestock, uh, there could be abandonment over time, uh, depending on, on the persistence of the horses to occupy those leks. Um, for every 50% increase over appropriate management level, uh, USGS found that there was a resultant decline in sage-grouse of 2.6 annually. Um, so our average uh, over appropriate management level is about 374%. So if you do the math on that and think about for every 50% over AML, we're at about 182 uh, percent rate of decline annually just attributed to two horses. Uh, livestock grazing, these are just the allotments which uh, we had the presentation from uh, Dr. Philip Street yesterday. These are the allotments on the landscape. And uh, I'll just quickly mention again that uh, the effects that we're finding on, on livestock grazing really revolve around chick survival. We didn't see any um, uh, effect on nest survival, uh, and the effect here was not as great as, as what we saw for horses. Uh, predation on the landscape. Um, from, a, from an adult standpoint, everything from golden eagles to bobcats to, to coyotes. And I just put this video in here. Uh, this is a, a lex survey that we were conducting in, in Eureka County uh, in 2019, and uh, there was a coyote leaving with uh, one of the attendees of one of the leks. Um, so uh, adult predation by these larger mammalian predators certainly takes place on the landscape. But one of the other things that um, you know has become a, a more common and increasing threat on the landscape is common ravens. Um, we've seen increases of uh, upwards of 600% in the Great Basin. Um, we're trying to develop some tools to address that, but an basically uh, an increase of one raven per 10 kilometers transect equated to about a 7.4% increase in the odds of a sage-grouse nest failure. And I'll just point to this graph right here. This is sort of a threshold right here. Um, 
0.4 ravens per square kilometer is really, um, once you get above that, you're really driving sage grouse nest success down. And we have a lot of study sites now that are exceeding that threshold. Um, so not only are they faced with uh, compromised resources out on the landscape, uh, with fire, conifer encroachment, and some of those natural things, uh, as well as just disturbance, um, now they've got to face a pretty effective nest predator as well. This basically is a map showing, it's a heat map of raven density across the state. And you can see here how raven densities are kind of following that I-80 corridor. Uh, highway corridors such as the Highway to Wild Horse, this is uh, 93 going up towards Jackpot. Uh, jackpot landfill, uh, a lot of subsidized resources in this area. Uh, and then agricultural areas, um, particularly things like agricultural pivots. And then the Mojave Desert. Um, and landfills around Vegas, um, we see movement of birds uh, that we have uh, uh, GPS marked down to these areas, uh, as well as even birds that um, are, are going into walnut orchards in, in uh, California. Uh, something that's probably subsidizing ravens the most on the landscape are, are transmission lines. Um, we spent a significant amount of time uh, from 2003 all the way through 2012 researching the effects of the Falcon to Gondor transmission line on the landscape. And basically, you know, you can think of the footprint itself maybe being uh, somewhat of a threat, but it's really when birds are using these as perches and, and nesting substrate. And what we found was the effect was all the way out to 12.5 kilometers away from that transmission line, uh, having an effect on, on nest survival. There's some other metrics too, other uh, survival rates that were affected as well, but this one was the most effective or affected. So you can think of these all as, as one sort of issue, or you can kind of make a conglomerate of all of them and think of things more cumulatively in terms of the cumulative impacts on the landscape of sage grouse. Pretty significant when you think about fire, um, mining, transmission lines. One of the things about transmission lines, because of national security reasons, we can't acquire all of the transmission lines on the landscape. So it's pretty difficult to do an analysis unless you get that data. And then throw climate and drought on top of that. And of course, you know, this is our current situation today. Um, but these are the drought periods we're experiencing uh, from basically 2000 to 2020, the last 20 years. Um, these droughts are getting more intense and longer duration than our wet years, which are, you know, sort of sandwiched in between here as these, you know, these, these smaller units. Uh, some of these droughts are very, very intense. Current, the current drought that we're in, I was just listening to the, uh, the morning news this morning and they, they had looked at some of the tree rings on some of the sequoias that had burned in California. And uh, just by looking at those tree rings, some of those trees were almost 3,000 years old that burned. This is the most significant drought in California in the last 1,200 years according to those, those tree rings. So that, that plays a role in what productivity likes, uh, is for sage grouse on the landscape, 
But what we ultimately see in a lot of places is these sagebrush die-offs. Um, sagebrush die-off from lack of water and sagebrush die-off from things like a rogamoth uh, on the landscape. So we, we often face a lot of questions over time about um, of hunting the species, and I just wanted to take you back um, a few decades into what things look like from a, from a hunting standpoint. Um, back in the early teens and uh, through the 30s, um, sage grouse hunting was managed by county and uh, these uh, county commissions, and that transcended over time. And really in the 70s and 80s, we still managed uh, open and hunt areas by county. So it was an entire county that was either open or closed. This is what things looked like back in 1980. Uh, 1990, uh, we actually had a season in most of Lincoln County. Uh, but everything except for Pershing County and Clark County was, was open to sage-grouse hunting uh, in 1990. And then I mentioned that in 1985 it was actually closed. The only closure I know of except for probably the early teens, there was some records of closing the season back then. And then we transferred, uh, transitioned into managing the, the species by uh, the hunt units because they were familiar to um, uh, hunters on the landscape, sportsmen on the landscape. So we had a, a certain criteria that we had to meet and I'll probably discuss that when we get to uh, the agenda item for seasons later on. But we were much more rigorous in terms of how we manage the species. And so this was what things looked like in 2000. Uh, 2010, we started closing more and more hunt units. 2020, and then this is what our recommendation looks like today. And I'm sure that if you talk to some of the old timers like Dan Pepez from White Pine County and told him that in 30 years, sage grouse I think would be closed in White Pine County, you would have said there's no way. And uh, we're actually proposing to, uh, to close uh, White Pine County in its entirety and some additional hunt units uh, in Elko County. Um, this is what harvest has looked like uh, over time. A lot less participation than we saw back in the 60s and 70s. Um, really hunter participation in, in sage-grouse hunting has waned. Um, and in some areas, uh, we're collecting, you know, in, in these really big populations, like in central Nevada, we might collect 55 wings in the wing cell for the entire Toyabe PMU. This is a, a, a graph that I found kind of fascinating. I, I worked with uh, Cody Schroeder to kind of put this together. What it shows here is um, our production estimates for mule deer fawns as observed in the fall. Uh, that's the blue line here, or the mean of, of the, uh, the points. And this is the, the spring observed fawn ratio, so uh, we obviously lose fawns over the winter. And then this is sage grouse productivity during that same time frame. It's showing a little steeper decline, but very, very similar to what's going on with production for, for fawn recruitment as well. So, you know, in terms of thinking about, okay, this is a pretty grim outlook. What needs to be done? So we actually kind of are trying to prioritize the landscape at this 
point, not just from a sage grouse standpoint, but also from some of the other sagebrush obligate standpoint as well. So what's all mashed up into this map is uh, modeled priority habitat for things like pygmy rabbit, uh, mule deer, Lahontan cutthroat trout, sage grouse, and uh, we even have pronghorn, as we just got a, uh, a pronghorn layer that shows um, uh, habitat suitability for, for pronghorn as well. So we basically took out all the fires. You can see where the mining activity is taking place. But these, these deep red areas are really where we need to focus our, our conservation efforts. Um, not only from a fire suppression standpoint, but also from a habitat quality standpoint and better management of anthropogenic disturbance in these areas because, you know, we're fragmenting this habitat into, you know, from an ocean into these various lakes, ponds, and um, uh, reservoirs of, of, of habitat. So we're at a critical point here, I think, that um, Unless we really get with it in terms of true conservation for this species, uh, it will continue to erode. Um, but we still have good portions of habitat left up here in northwestern Nevada, uh, where we, you know, we mentioned yesterday about some things we can do to even improve that habitat. Uh, these important areas up here in Elko County and then in central Nevada, uh, we need to think about better conservation for these areas and better management. So not all is doom and gloom. Um, this uh, was an area that I visited uh, just last week. This is actually the, the top of the Montana mountains near 4th of July Meadow. Um, this photo I actually took back in, in 2006 of the same meadow. And we realized at that time something needs to be done here. Uh, not only was it being heavily used, I think it was a domestic horse and livestock permit out here, but these road crossings were, were pretty poorly placed. And so in 2010 or 12, I think we used Ruby Pipeline mitigation funding uh, to put a pipe rail fence exposure around this meadow complex, which is, I want to say it's about 1,000 acres. It's pretty large. And this is what it looks like today. And these are some, uh, some rock dam structures that were actually placed into the stream channel that's really built up uh, the, uh, the stream bed and it looks magnificent even in a dry year and is retaining water. So these are the types of projects that we really try and focus on. Um, they're postage stamps on the landscape but they're really, really super important postage, postage stamps and, and uh, there was several sage grouse around the periphery of this thing I'm sure that come in and use it uh, pretty frequently. But Anyway, uh, that's, that's all for my presentation. I wanted to kind of leave you at least a little bit on, on a positive note. So I'll take any questions at, at this point. Thank you, Mr. Espinosa. Does anyone have questions for Sean? Commissioner Rogers? There, I think it works. Now that was outstanding, uh, Mr. Espinoza. I thought that was very informative and, and uh, educational for myself. Um, one of the things, and maybe you touched on it early on in the presentation before we got into some of the nuts and bolts of stuff, but I'm just curious how, I mean, as critical as this seems to be um, across the footprint, how 
collaborative are we here in Nevada with other states and things that they're doing or not doing and just curious the collaboration that's going on and information sharing of information. Uh, thank you for the question, Shauna Spinoza for the record. Um, so there's there's pretty significant amount of information exchange that takes place today. Uh, we just had a, a, a sage grouse symposium, sage and Columbian sharp-tailed grouse symposium, which is held every two years. And uh, this was the 32nd one. And over three days, there was 60 talks on both of those species, including gunnison sage grouse. Um, so the amount of research and effort that's going into the habitat and the species is significant. Um, a lot of information sharing that takes place. It's almost to the point, though, where it's, it's hard to comprehend. Uh, and there's so many models and tools out there that it, it, it almost boggles the mind for a manager that might be sitting in a, in a field office or a, or a district office to kind of pull all that together and say, okay, what should I be focusing on and what are my resources and how can I most appropriately get this done on the landscape? Um, it's certainly gotten, you know, eons better than what it was uh, 20 years ago, for example, and we're getting more effective. Uh, but it's a matter of, uh, it's really a matter of capacity within the, the federal land management agencies. It's a matter of our capacity and, and funding resources. Is just one other, is there any one of the other states, Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, that are having resounding success in any of those particular areas? Well, like I mentioned in that, that one slide that showed Montana, that was, that was doing quite well. I mentioned that, that Sage Grass Initiative effort. NRCS is really focused up there. Um, there's some CRP focus as well. Um, so, and they have a, what's seemingly right now, a fairly effective mitigation strategy. Um, but let's face it, um, they've got a much more resilient landscape. They've got precipitation on their side. Um, so they've got some leeway, they've got room for error where we don't quite have as much room for error in a less resilient landscape where we're faced with cheatgrass issues and, and other invasive species and, you know, just precipitation, lack of precipitation. Um, Wyoming has a, a pretty effective density disturbance calculation tool where, you know, they limit uh, disturbance to 3% within any of their core areas. So nobody can develop in those core areas once that 3% cap is met. Um, if a developer wanted to go in, it would have to restore habitat elsewhere before it could come into the core and, and drive that up or down uh, that, that cap level. So that seems to be pretty effective as well. Um, there's some things happening in Oregon like uh, their SageCon effort and um, you know, that's more of a Great Basin uh, uh, centric effort where they're actually using some of their um, uh, local um, volunteer firefighters to uh, more effectively uh, tackle fires and get initial attack uh, using surplus equipment. Um, uh, the ranch, the ranching community up there is, is really on that. And that seems to be pretty effective at managing fire in that landscape. So leaving it to the folks that are out there on the ground and then waiting for that assistant to come at, at, a, at a greater level if needed. So there's some examples out there of success.
quick follow-up and then I'll come over here. The um, strategy that you just mentioned in Wyoming, where is that managed from? Is that at a higher level? Is, that, is everyone collaborating from, let's say, the governor's office to the city level? How, where is that being managed? Yeah, uh, thank you for the question, uh, Chairwoman East. Um, it's more of like there are state lands that manages that um, and they have to go through a permitting process. Everything goes through a state lands type permitting process there. Um, their uh, Wyoming Department of Fish and Game has input into that and an analysis and I think it's, a, it's almost like a, a shared type uh, management strategy there but I, I believe it's more of a state lands. Um, Secretary Wosley, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, uh, it is a separate entity and they brought in some additional capacity to administer it. And so it isn't necessarily in the Wyoming Game and Fish, but they're certainly party to it. But uh, while I have the floor, I might um, offer some additional um, context for Commissioner Rogers' question about the coordination across the states. And so um, Sean might be a little modest in, in his role in many of those range-wide efforts, but as I, as I said, there's 13 sage brush states, 11 sage grouse states, all of whom are members of the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agency's sage brush executive oversight committee that also includes federal membership. There's uh, representation from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, NRCS, USGS, uh, Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service, that all sit on that. and, and uh, I'm the present chair of that committee. We, we meet um, four times a year, um, various locations when uh, we don't have a pandemic. Um, there is a, a working group associated with that that Sean serves on, the, the risk team. Uh, Sean also participated on the conservation objectives team. Uh, there's been a national technical uh, review team. Uh, there, there's been and continues to be significant coordination across uh, states because as we know the, the, the listing won't be uh, you know state by state it, it'll be a range-wide decision and as you can see from some of Sean's maps uh, Nevada plays you know heavily in, in that decision uh, one other thing your other question about have there been some successes in, in some places um, and Sean spoke a little bit to Montana I think it's really important to recognize two things. One is that the land ownership varies greatly state by state. So the solutions and strategies in Montana and what Montana has had to do through those NRCS programs and getting private landowners to participate in those programs and Montana's uh, willingness to require mitigation of private landowners uh, is vastly different than a strategy that might be employed in Nevada with so much public land. Also, the, some of the limiting factors for Montana and Wyoming are vastly different than the limiting factors on the population in Nevada as, as far as the role of climate with the basin and range topography. Uh, science has, has told us that you know, our, our populations are much more dependent on these mesic meadows and how snowpack and climate affects those. We have much more, much like our economy and, and our dependence, historic dependence on mining, the boom-bust economy, sage-grouse in the Great Basin are much more of a boom-and-bust species than they are in states like Wyoming and, and Montana. So the solutions, partly due to land ownership, partly due to biology um, for Nevada, 
uh, will likely need to be a little bit different than, than what has been successful in some of the other Western states. Thank you, Secretary Wesley. Just taking off from um, what Director Wesley was saying, I mean, we know in Nevada a lot of our lands are regulated by the Bureau of Land Management, other federal agencies. And I guess my question is it kind of feels like, you know, we have this whole elephant in the room about listing the species, and we went through that, and then we decided not to list the species. And yet, it's the U.S. government that's making many decisions that are harmful, these agencies, to our sagebrush habitat, and it's somewhat out of the hands of the department. To, I mean, if you're going to issue a mining permit or a right-of-way license or permit, you know, um, that's completely, I'm sure they ask for your input during NEPA maybe, but it's done, I mean, for the most part. And I just don't know what the strategy is. Like, what are we going to do? I mean, looking at um, the geothermal, the mining, um, the, 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 you know, the transmission lines, those are things that are largely out of your hands, fire, totally out of your hands, you know, so it's like, what do we do? What's the strategy? I think it's a really complex question, but what is the strategy? Uh, thank you for the question, Commissioner Hubbs. Um, that's on the minds of everybody right now. And there is a, a sagebrush conservation strategy that was largely led by Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Phase one of that is, is complete. And that was basically an analysis of anything and everything to do about sagebrush across its, its natural range. Phase two is going to be, okay, how are we going to conserve what's left? How are we going to improve it and how can we grow it? And so there's some questions being posed now uh, by, by WAFWA to people that are interested in, from a local level all the way up to research standpoint, okay, is this, should this be a federally led effort? Should this be a governor led effort? Or should this be a, a, a non-governmental organization led effort? Um, I struggle with that a little bit in terms of which one might be the most appropriate or should be a hybrid of various. Um, honestly, we've had a governor-led effort in many states. Um, it's led to some mitigation programs that we probably wouldn't have had otherwise and equals the playing field for, ever, for anyone who wants to operate in sage-grouse habitat. But in terms of getting an uplift, conserving habitat, we're not there yet, obviously. Um, so I'm thinking that some sort of hybrid between a federally-led and an NGO-led effort is necessary, but you're absolutely right. Unless the Bureau of Land Management gets serious about sage-grouse conservation, we're dead in the water. Um, we don't have a management authority un unless it's a wildlife management area that we have that's state held. This is, this is federally managed land that we're talking about. There's some important private lands that we can work with private landowners on um, and, and, and get some gains, uh, as we discussed yesterday. But the, the tide needs to turn from a federal perspective. And we saw over the last four to five years 
what has happened in sage grouse habitat um, is something that I've not seen in my career in terms of the level of activity from a mining standpoint to whoever wants to operate on the landscape. I mean, it has been a deluge and kudos to our habitat division for everything that they do um, and the work that they do because um, it's, a, it's almost like you don't know where to turn when you go to work. Um, there's an issue every day and you're thinking to yourself, that probably isn't good and you fight like hell to stop something in some places and it doesn't work and that is the most difficult thing about this job. Yeah, Sean, um, you talked about Montana. They, they uh, for a mitigation measure, they go out and uh, have to acquire or mitigate uh, uh, their impact. So do they move birds to this improved area? Or, you know, have they tried, is that part of their success? Or are they improving habitat in already occupied uh, areas? Uh, thank you for the question, Commissioner Olmberg. Um, not necessarily in Montana. Um, that's that's pretty high density population of birds, uh, and, and they readily kind of move from adjacent areas back into habitats that you know transition from. Uh, you know, sock busting was a big deal in Montana, so they converted it to agriculture. But a lot of in a lot of cases, they're transitioning back. Um, we took a tour up in Montana uh, for the sage grouse workshop four years ago and uh, what some of the uh, producers up there were finding was that um, from a livestock perspective when they went back to native range uh, they were actually gaining more weight with their cows and, and their calves by going back to that rather than um, more of a, a crop centric type uh, um, business model so that that seemed to work for a lot of operators up there uh, going back to a natural landscape. And once that happened, I mean, you had these patches of birds that were here and there, but they just reoccupied those, those sites on their own. Um, neighboring North Dakota conducted a, a translocation uh, just here recently, and actually using, moving broods, hens with broods from Wyoming to North Dakota, as well as adults. But, um, and, and, and that population in North Dakota was just about extirpated. So the translocation seems to have worked and held on to that portion of the range, which is right up against Montana. Um, so on the Montana side, they really haven't done any, any translocations, at least that I'm aware of. Other questions for Mr. Espinosa? We talked last night a little bit about translocations within Nevada. Can you maybe enlighten all of us a little bit on that? Sure. Uh, thank you for the question. Again, Chairwoman East. So really the issue with, with, uh, with translocations is, um, well, now, you know, where do you take them from when populations are, you know, kind of at a, at a minimum uh, in some of these areas? Um, but if, if you don't have habitat quality where you're putting them, then um, you're just basically feeding the predators that might be out there, uh, in essence. Uh, you know, we've seen that, of course, with, with Chucker. 
And captive rearing of, of sage grouse um, it, it can be successful, but once you release those birds into a natural habitat, they don't have a predator aversion. And I don't know what it is from a standpoint of passing things on from mom to chick, but that, that sort of behavior that's acquired um, over time is, uh, is not something that you can teach in a zoo or a lab. Um, so oftentimes what happens is you release birds and, and you see significant mortality. Um, the only effort that I really know of where there's captive rearing and release is going on in Alberta right now. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of watching that closely. There's been some, some mild success there, but they're also experiencing some pretty high mortality post-release. But essentially, like what Secretary Wosley mentioned is, you know, you could go out and, and release 30 sage grouse into a parking lot and they'll be there for a few days and that's gonna be about it. We've done that work before. We've done it in the Humboldt Range, uh, just out uh, by Rye Patch. Uh, we did a, a four, three or four year release program into the Humboldt. And, you know, by and large, it, it probably wasn't all that successful. Okay, any other questions? So I know, again, the elephant in the room, but so what is the likelihood that they're going to petition? Obviously, I know there's lawsuits underway, but like, let's go over that. Let's figure out, I mean, what is the likelihood that it, that it may be listed? I mean, because the numbers don't demonstrate that there may not be a need, at least from the data we saw today, it looks like there might be a need. And the, I mean, the, the good side about that for the species is that they will have their habitat protected. I think that the types of use that we're seeing will be much more scrutinized, and so potentially it could be helpful for the species, but we know then, then obviously that's hard for our economy, for our, the people of Nevada that de depend or need um, the, the use of this land, so on and so forth, but um, at, at some point I'm just wondering, I mean, there is a reason to list if like you can't keep the numbers above Lambda, they're gonna continue to go down, then we're just saying, okay, they're gonna die out. I mean, that's the long-term trend that we're seeing in case. So I guess what my point is, is like, where are we at now? I'd like to talk about that, like, really, um, to figure out if there's another solution other than potentially just finding critical habitat for them and saying, this is it, nobody gets to upset this habitat anymore. Yeah, thanks for the question, uh, Commissioner Hubbs. Um, we'll see another listing uh, effort here probably very soon, um, but there was a rider placed on a defense spending bill uh, that basically did not allow the Fish and Wildlife Service to list sage grouse and at least until after 2022. I think post 2022, we'll see a petition to list again um, from whether it's Center for Biologic, Biological Diversity or, or Western Watersheds or a conglomeration of those groups. I'm, I'm sure that we'll, we'll see that again. Um, there's two sides to the listing coin. Uh, a, you, you mentioned you know, protection of habitat, um, which, which can occur. Uh, but then B, 
um, once you list the species and you have critical habitat, then if you want to go in and do some restoration work or you want to do some enhancement work, that affects that ability to do those sorts of things. So that's the kind of catch-22 that we often worry about. After a fire, perhaps, um, I can't tell you if it's designated critical habitat if we could go in there and do active restoration and seeding. Probably so, but maybe not. Um, and then, you know, there's always the desert tortoise situation that I look at in terms of how effective that's been at conserving desert tortoise. And probably not very good. Um, there's a lot of things that happen in tortoise habitat that probably shouldn't, and it's an endangered species. So uh, there's that to think about, too. But, you know, and, and the walls are closing in, and I'm not sure, you know, where that threshold might be, but I'm, I know that the needle, if you look at it, we're moving towards a listing rather than away from a listing. I think there was a point probably in 2010-ish where I would have said we're kind of moving the other way, but we've got that thing pegged to the right now, so. Um. Just out of curiosity, and this may be more of a, a, a question for Dak Burnett, but if we feel that the, you know, um, the agencies are being negligent in some respect during the NEPA process, can the state take action against them? Sorry, I wasn't here yesterday. I don't know how to work this. <laughs> Mike, obviously. It's been a while. Yeah, so that's a tough question. Um, essentially, you know, we have the Bi-State Sagegrass uh, petition that, um, well, the, the ruling recently in which um, the decision by the USGS was that the animal not be listed, the bird not be listed, and we're supporting an effort um, by USGS to defend a lawsuit there as it relates to listing decisions. In terms of affirmatively going the other way, there's not much that the state can do. Um, I know on a daily basis I deal with uh, issues that uh, involve coordination between NDAL and BLM all the time. I know NEPA evaluations involve coordinated action between NDAL and BLM. There's not much that the state can do as it relates to forcing the hand of the federal government on conservation issues. It's not owned by us. Uh, it's not a property of the state of Nevada. The, obviously, you have federal statute that comes into play as it relates to endangered species, that sort of thing. But, not much the uh, state can do or state agencies can do. And I think Director Wozniak can probably speak to this, but I think just the opposite is really what the states want to do, and that is work with the Department of the Interior, work with these agencies to make good things happen, especially as it relates to the sage process. I guess I would add there's um, to your original question about listing. So I, I think that uh, 
it's a foregone conclusion that we'll see another petition to list sage grass. Um, exactly when or what that looks like and the timeline, the resources the Fish and Wildlife Service has, and then to, to Sean's point, you know, listing and looking at the tortoise as an example, a, a listing um, provides a significant amount of um, challenges to do good things as well as, you know, protecting the habitat. So one of the first steps, if, if a species listed, one of the first steps that we need to do is designate critical habitat. And we would, you know, look at like one of the maps that Sean showed and, and you know, maybe that would be the basis for designation of a critical habitat and a recovery plan. But that would mean that anybody uh, independent of land ownership that has land designated as critical habitat for that species would have to enter into a consultation before they could do anything out there, whether they're going to cut hay or plant hay or, or graze it or, or whatever, it would be incredibly challenging. So for that reason, people often talk about the Endangered Species Act, they talk about the, the, golden, uh, the golden hour of conservation, which is that pre-decision where everybody's really motivated to be at the table and make things happen. When you, when you ask about what the state can do, can the state take action, um, if you're well in advance of that listing petition or that listing decision, uh, the BLM, for example, has a multiple use mandate and through their NEPA requirement, they're required to take input and evaluate the impacts, but they're not required to make a decision consistent with minimizing those impacts. So their obligation ends at the point that they consider that in their analysis. If they continue to go forward with the decision that you know we in fact realize those impacts that the state wildlife agency uh, suggested might occur or would occur, uh, you know we can continue to hold that up and say, "See, we told you. See, we told you." But that's not very very comforting. And one of the one of the ironies here to me is that so you have the Department of Interior in which the Bureau of Land Management is housed, as well as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who is tasked with administering the Endangered Species Act. And so because of the unbroken track record of failure to implement of one federal agency in the Department of the Interior, another federal agency in that same department can come in and use the powers and authorities under the Endangered Species Act to uh, protect the species and, and create you know, all the special designations. And so it is, it is really challenging. Um, we know we're going to see a petition to list. Um, hopefully that'll, you know, create some energy and motivation in the room to where the, there can be some, some meaningful conservation uh, with some, some durable benefits. But it, it's, it, it, at that point, it becomes more about uh, politics and process maybe than, than biology. Thank you, Secretary Wilson. Uh, just on that note, yeah, it seems just like a total conflict between the agencies at times, and it's almost like and those are executive branches, right? And so they have their mandates, and their mandates are designed by the executive or by the legislature? They're part of the executive branch. Their budgets are proposed by the president, but then acted upon by Congress. So their authorities and funding are under the purview of, of Congress. So their mandate, like when we're talking about the multiple use mandate, is derived from Congress? Yeah. Okay, so then maybe that's where they need to start to, I mean, if we don't want to go the full, like, throttle with the listing, which is horrible, I think, for a lot of people, but sometimes the last resort for our wildlife. 
is why would they not modify mandate to BLM in a case like this and say in these areas where we have potential need, potentially, or a potential need in the future for listing if it doesn't get cured or better, this is a higher priority and therefore we utilize another strategy underneath but for these analyses. It just seems crazy. And that's exactly what happened with the land use plan process in 2015 and it was the, the creation of those plans to specifically address sage-grouse needs on the landscape and the Fish and Wildlife Service's contention that those plans were binding and enforceable that led the Secretary of Interior to uh, claim that uh, protection under the Endangered Species Act for sage-grouse in 2015 was not warranted because of a binding and enforceable land use plan uh, that would guide the BLM and their actions on the landscape. Um, I, I think that the... Okay, but if it's binding and enforceable, why aren't they enforcing it? That's the question. That's what I was going to say next. I think that uh, fool me once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice, and I don't think the binding and enforceable argument would carry water a second time around. Um, and there has been, and that those land use plans have been a, a subject of litigation as well. Um, they were changed during the Trump administration to you know 2019 land use plan, and then Judge Windmill uh, said they didn't do adequate NEPA, and that rolled back to the 2015 land use plan. And so that puts the BLM in the difficult spot of which land use plan, and when a project proponent, a mining company, geothermal, whatever comes in, what plan do they adhere to? And it depends on when they file their plan of operations. And this is where it gets way more difficult in terms of process and politics than, than biology. But you're exactly right. That's exactly uh, what they try to do, and it's exactly what makes the most sense. And I, I feel pretty confident that that is exactly what will happen uh, this time. But the challenge will be in trying to get people to accept the notion that the plans are binding and enforceable, given the track record of the last land use plans. Okay. Thank you for that information. Very helpful. Um, is that it for, okay, great. I'm thinking we'll move on to the duck stamp request and then we'll take a quick break after the duck stamp. So agenda item number 18, duck stamp request, wildlife staff specialist, Mike, I'm having a real hard time pronouncing his last name, Zaradka, oh I did it, and Habitat uh, Division Administrator, Alan Janae. The Commission will review and make take action to approve up to $118,600 for projects submitted for FY 2022 funding from the duck stamp account. The specific duck stamp projects that may be approved are listed below. Carson Lake and Pasture Infrastructure Improvement, $40,000. Ducks Unlimited Wetlands Conservation Support, FY 22. $10,000, Eastern Complex Weed Control, $10,000, Key Pittman Wildlife Management Area Wildlife Food Plots, $2,600, Mason Valley Wildlife Management Area Prescribed Burn, $20,000, Stillwater National Wildlife Refuge Water Conveyance Improvement Projects, $20,000, and Washoe Dam Repairs, $16,000. Janae. Great, thank you. Uh, for the record, Alan Janae, Habitat Division Administrator. So we're here to consider those duck stamp requests. 
Um, before you guys get started, we just wanted to give you an update as far as the balance uh, in the duck stamp account. Um, there is a correction that was in the duck stamp report. There was a uh, correction to a project amount for the Washoe Dam. Originally, there was a submission of $8,000 and then a corrected price of sixteen. So. Basically, what we've done is, is the highlighted number of proposed projects is what's reflected in the support material of 118,600, and that affected the, the changing estimated balance end at the end of FY22, um, which we just decreased by 8,000, and then the account balance less previous obligations, which would take it down to 240. If you guys approved everything, and these are with estimates of uh, revenue that are generated off of previous years uh, sales, license sales, because we don't know exactly the, the fiscal year hasn't ended, so we don't know what the total is, so we estimate based off the of previous year. So this is a, a very close approximate, and if you remember back to Jack Robb's uh, presentation on license sales and tag applications this year, we expect that there will be a slight increase and so there will probably even be a little bit greater revenue. So, um, looking over the projects that we submitted to you, I can um, either walk through those projects uh, specifically, or if you would like, um, we could just answer any questions if the commission was sufficient um, in their understanding of the project based off the support material. Okay. I think that's probably fine. Does anyone, if, if we don't have questions, maybe we'll walk through. Okay. Does anyone have questions for Mr. Janae? Okay, we don't have questions. All right. You bet all very quickly. Okay. Um, walk us through this. So, Carson Lake and Pasture, uh, Pasture Infrastructure Improvement, that's for uh, basically water control structures, uh, cattle guards, as you will recall, this year uh, Carson Lake and Pasture transferred to the state of Nevada, and so we're basically looking at trying to do some improvements out there to try to upgrade the property based on our ownership and the transfer of that property from Bureau of Reclamation. So um, we've got a number of uh, head gates, water control structures, and cattle guards that we'll be trying to improve out there, as well as an offense that um, if you remember back to the big flood, there was a livestock division fence out there that actually was pulled up because the, the post floated basically because of the flood. So that's basically a project looking to improve Carson Lake and Pasture. Ducks Unlimited Wetlands Conservation Support in the amount of $10,000. That goes to Ducks Unlimited to try to um, improve the situation of uh, the nesting habitats up in uh, Canada. And this specifically goes to Alberta because based on the science, we see a large number of those birds that actually migrate through Nevada. So this is to try to improve the, the production up in Canada. The Eastern Complex Weed Control, that's an aggregation of funds that we pull together to try to do weed abatement on our wildlife management properties. We hire the Tri-County Weed Association that we work with. It's a collaborative process. They spay a bunch, bunch of different properties, but um, it gives us the ability to um, hire some really good people and do some good things. Key Pit and WMA food plots, um, that's for food plots. Um, it's a combined project with some other funds from uh, Upland Game Stamp as well. 
and it's all about trying to you know put some better uh, forage species on the area. Mason Valley Wildlife Management or uh, Mason Mason Wally Mason Valley Wildlife Management Area uh, prescribed burn twenty thousand. That's about conducting a burn out there to try to again increase production in the pond series. Um, Stillwater National Wildlife Refuge Conveyance Improvement Project. This is to help uh, with some improvements there. It's a joint project with Fish and Wildlife Service, Ducks Unlimited. I believe Dream Tag is actually going to come into this. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not keeping up on the screen, but um, that'll, uh, it's basically to put in a pump to assist with water management levels out um, of Stillwater. And then the Washoe Dam repairs, this is a proposal for partial funding to do an investigation. There is a uh, dam structure, glorified headgate, that is uh, downstream of the old Highway 395 that has um, had, had uh, maintenance issues in the past and needs to be replaced um, per uh, dam safety. And so we're working with state parks, the conservation districts, and others to try to uh, do an investigation to figure out the engineering to try to replace that dam so that we can, you know, see the consistency in the management of scripts, which is that land, that wetland between Little Washoe and Big Washoe Lake. Um, well, right now it really doesn't look like much um, on most years of this. That's an overview of the projects. If you have any more specific uh, questions, I can address those. Any questions for Mr. Janae? Okay, seeing none, this is an action item. We'll take it out to <coughs> public comment. Cap, comment first, please. For the record, Paul Dixon, Clark. Um, the question of the department is, in years past, and I kind of lost track due to the pandemic in 20, we always had uh, food plot money for Overton, and, and uh, Stan Hardy did the uh, sharecropping and farming out there. Is he not doing that, or we're, I was surprised that we didn't see that on this request, is, is food plots for Overton, because it is the largest area for us to do duck hunting, dove, we do other have other small gamblers out there also. So. I just wondered why that was missing from this thing. And I kind of lost track, I'll be honest with you, because of the pandemic of what he was doing out there. So thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Dixon. Anyone else? Mr. Green, come on up. See if I can get this right. Gene Green, Carson Cab, uh, Madam Chair and Commissioners. Um, we're looking at this on the Carson Lake and Pasture area, uh, getting uh, now the designated forty thousand dollars, which is really good. But with the 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 drought year that we have, it's really dry out there, and there's been a huge amount of damage over the last few years. Um, it might be a perfect year to add a little more to that and do more repair out there and correction of some of the damage that's happened over the last few years, especially with the levees and things like that. Uh, we've had uh, several complaints from the people who go out there to hunt that can't even get to places they used to hunt. And we know this is a big step forward, but especially in a drought year when there's not going to be the water in the way, 
might be an ideal time to add a little bit to that. Okay, thank, thank you, you for your comment. Any other cab comment? Public comment. Okay, we'll bring it back to the commission. Mr. Janae, can you maybe address the two questions from the cabs? Sure. The over 10 food plot and the Crescent Lake and Pasture, maybe an increase in dollars? Yeah, so we do, it, this is not totally comprehensive at all the work that we do. Um, we have, uh, you know, federal uh, grant funds that support our wildlife management areas. And so we make an assessment based on, you know, needs and, you know, the sharecropping at Overton will continue. We'll basically be working with them and that, that project will occur. It's just not represented within this duck stamp proposal. Um, as far as Carson Lake and Pasture, very similar story is, is that this is only a small match portion um, that we bring into the whole scheme of how we're going to fund things out there. We have got a long list of items that, that we're going to go try to conquer on Carson Lake and Pasture. And this is just, you know, we, we want to represent that we're actually doing some work out there and bring some of the match to that grant. Um, but this is by no means um, the, the entirety of what we're going to do at Carson Lake and Pasture. So we're going to use this as a piece of the funding and we'll be using quite a bit more uh, wildlife or uh, sport fish restoration funds out there as well. Okay, thank you for that. Um, any other questions or a motion to approve? Madam just clarification oh, to add to Alan's point on those dollar amounts. So the, that match is the three to one match. So you can look at that total amount right there, 118.6, and multiply that by four to get the total amount. So that 40,000 at Carson Lake uh, quickly becomes 160,000, uh, if my math is right. Uh, with, with uh, 120,000 federal dollars. So, uh, yeah, this is the required non-federal portion. So each of these, uh, I believe all of these um, expenditures are eligible uh, as matched for federal dollars. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, do we have a motion? Um, Commissioner Hobbs? Okay. Yes, I'd like to make a motion to accept the duck stamp request. Um, for this upcoming year, is that correct? 2021? 2022. 2022, my apologies, um, as presented. Okay, thank you. Okay, so we have a motion by Commissioner Hellows and a second by Vice Chair Barnes to approve the duck stamp request. All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carries 8 to 0 with Commissioner McNinch-Epson. Thank you, Mr. Janae. Um, Let's take a quick break and we'll come back to number 19. So it's 10, it's a, essentially 1040. Let's come back at um, 1055, take 15 minutes. 